0: Hello, everyone. This is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Nate Privett, and with me today is James M. Fenelon, author of Angels Against the Sun, a World War II saga of grunts, grit, and brotherhood, which is the book that we'll be talking about today, which gives a historical narrative of the lives of the Army's 11th Airborne Division and their campaign that spearheaded the Pacific Front of World War II in specific sections that we'll be talking about today. But first, hello, uh, Mr. Fenelon. how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well, Nate. Thanks for the opportunity to speak with you.
0: And while we will be jumping into the meat and potatoes of this story, for context, I feel like you would be well-equipped to answer this. We're going to be talking about paratroopers. What is a paratrooper? Given that you were one yourself, you can answer this question well.
1: It's a great place to start. A paratrooper, as you mentioned, uh, is, is in the United States context, at least, a member of the Army. and is essentially an infantryman that is delivered or dropped into combat Uh, via parachute. Typically, uh, you know, when we think about paratroopers in the World War II context, we think of them, of course, dropping behind enemy lines in Normandy or seizing bridges in Holland. So they were used very often as shock troops to initiate uh, much larger assaults or campaigns.
0: And as your book details in a uh, wonderfully vivid narrative structure, that's a kind of experience that isn't too pleasant at times. You are very upfront about the type of story that you are telling. So my first big question to you is, you chose a type of narrative that is both, well, historical and narrative. You're bringing in facts, your book is filled with quotations of diaries, the words that these men actually spoke, it's history, but you also present it in the experience of these soldiers. What made you choose that style? Of, of narrative for something that's very historical?
1: It's a great question. I wrote Angels Against the Sun with a narrative approach, because I feel like the best way for, for us to understand the war and the human experience is to give voice as much as possible to the people who actually lived it. And, and understanding and seeing it through their eyes is the best way to get the context and the full depth of, of that experience.
0: I see. And about that full depth of the experience, there were a couple places that I noted. You are you are not afraid to tell the full story, and sometimes that means naming <laughs> naming chapters, bugs, breasts, and beer. And other times it means telling the story of of the brutality of war coming from both sides. Other times it means um, the jokes of. <laughs> Uh, a Japanese soldier yelling in 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 English, and the the Americans yelling right back, "UCLA bastard," which I laughed audibly uh, at that line. But how did you keep a balance of? Because I felt the balance of we're telling a real story. This is war. It's gritty, but also these are real men who are dealing with hunger, laughing about uh, shooting bats <laughs> when they've got nothing better to do. How did you wrestle with, or what was your process in? finding the moments to tell the hard-hitting facts while also making sure your audience doesn't go through <laughs> enough trauma on its own and giving them some of the, the, the highlights of the camaraderie of the, the soldiers?
1: Yeah, I think that uh, you've made some great observations there. I think, you know, one of, the, one of the things is we get further and further removed from the war over the decades, and we've, we've rightly branded the veterans and, and the folks that lived through that experience as the greatest generation and I think it's important to remember, though, that they were people, just like, just like you and me. They had concerns, they had fears, they got bored. Um, you know, the nobility of fighting war wasn't really something that those on the ground felt at the time, right? That's something that certainly has been bestowed later and is, and is worthy of that. But at the time, everybody on the ground was just worried about getting through the day, whether that be through a day of combat or through a day of monotony stuck in the middle of the Pacific with nothing to do. And so striking the balance and telling those stories, you know, both the humorous side, you know, humor is obviously a mechanism that can be used to get people through some very difficult times. And then also the challenges of how do you, from a leadership perspective, how do you manage young men who are bored and seeking entertainment in, in any way that they can find it?
0: <laughs> really quickly, with how you wrote this book, you also wrote another one, uh, Four Hours of Fury, which is about the American 17th Airborne Division over the Rhine in 1945. What was the difference in experience of you looking over the personal accounts and, and just as you wrote these, those two stories, given that they're on the two different major fronts of World War II, what made Angels Against the Sun unique as a, as a writing experience for you?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think that, you know, what, what and you kind of hinted at this in, in the previous question, Was what struck me the most about the 11th Airborne Division in the Pacific was there just wasn't really any let-up in, in their experience of the war and the brutality of it, right? Mm-hmm. In, in Europe, you at least had guys that could, you know, on occasion get a get a week-long pass or a weekend pass into a nearby village or to Paris, maybe, if you were lucky, and you could in some ways, escape the war, if you will. You know, at least temporarily. In the Pacific, they had no such luxury. Even if they weren't on the front lines, they were just on a different part of the island, still dealing with the same kind of bugs, the heat, the disease. So, you know, so there was really no way to escape, you know, mentally from from what was going on at, at any point. And I think that was one of the big differences that. That struck me between the two experiences of writing about Europe and then, and then visiting the Pacific. And it was, that, it was that kind of thing that I wanted to, to share with the readers.
0: And another thing, you also mentioned, I, I think in the last few pages of the book, that, that no one comes into a story without their own perspective, that we're all looking at this um, as you've said, uh, at least before the, the uh, interview, that thank goodness we don't have to have these experiences as well, but they're very foreign to us. But you yourself served for 12 years. You're the graduate of the U.S. Army's Airborne, Jumpmaster, Pathfinder schools. So you're writing these stories from the experience of someone who's actually maybe not been in exactly their boots, but gone through very similar story, experiences yourself. How did that, I guess, personal background Affect your maybe not just the writing process, but also just how you came to see these men
1: Yeah, I think where where I I feel like my experience helped was keeping me grounded in just the, the day-to-day experience right of um, Again, I've never been in a bonsai attack. I've never been in under artillery fire or anything like that but what I did do was I did serve with a great bunch of guys who were my best friends and who I relied upon. And so it was that kind of camaraderie, if you will, that, you know, that brotherhood in the subtitle of the book that I really wanted to evoke and help people understand that, you know, when you're with a group and they become more important than you, uh, you can accomplish fantastic things and survive the unimaginable.
0: Mm -hmm. Also, as someone who's not I guess uh, my expertise is not World War II history. The looming characters of Swing and, and other big names in, the, in this book really struck me, and I appreciated the nuance with which you described people like the Brigadier General Joseph M. Swing, that he could be tactful and charming, but he often wasn't. He kind of, he cared about his men, but also you talk about some figures within the 11th Airborne, kind of snipping back at times when they thought it was, was right. I was just curious as to how you came to see the relationships between Swing and the men that, that served under him, and also just generally speaking on to... Yeah, that
1: was one of the things that really surprised me uh, while I was researching and writing Angels Against the Sun was, you know, Swing became a a very dynamic person, as I was going through this process, and you know, through him and through the way he managed his campaigns in the Pacific, you really see the complexity of a character. You know that we all that we all kind of have our our foibles, we all have our strengths, and I think that you know, seeing um, how Swing carried from being a you know junior lieutenant in the in, in Black Jack Pershing's expedition into Mexico in 1916, all the way up until he um, was in command of a division in the Pacific Theater, you really see how those, he brings those experiences with him. You know, he, was, he, he fought very hard to uh, keep as many of his men alive as possible by instead of using, shedding blood on the battlefield, using as, as, as much technology as he could. And then I think, you know, when you, when you look at the, the character, you know, the, the, the men that served under him, you know, a lot of people have this idea that in the military it's just a, you know, you do what you're told. The guy who has the higher rank or, the, or the, you know, the woman that has the higher rank tells those below them what to do, and there's no questions, there's no debate, it just happens. And I think that that's, that's certainly outside of my experience and certainly outside of the experience of how you lead um, you know, particularly the 11th Airborne in the combat. It's, it's, it's leadership, right, not management. And I think Swing mm-hmm. is a great example of, of of how he balanced that leadership and how those underneath him, um, under his command, rather reacted to and helped focus that.
0: Yeah. And these guys under Swing are huge figures, at least in the actual history of World War II in the, the Pacific front. I mean, As you say, they're the first American boots on the actual uh, soil of Japan proper. But these also, a lot of the pictures, I mean, these are never before published. My question is, one, just where where did you get all these? But then two, why is the 11th Airborne so, uh, I guess, underappreciated in the larger picture of history, do you think? Yes,
1: it's, uh, it's a good question. So the, the photos come from a number of sources. Um, some, some of them come from spending hours and hours in the basement of archives going through file folders to, to unearth them. I was very fortunate in, in many cases to have families of, of veterans give me permission to reproduce some of their family photos, mm-hmm. which you know provided in my mind some of the best examples of, of photos from the period. And I think, you know, the 11th being overlooked in the Pacific is, is similar to the Army being overlooked in the Pacific. When we think of the Pacific theater, we typically think of the Marine Corps, who mm-hmm. certainly did a you know, tremendous job um, of crashing through the Pacific. But the Army also had a significant presence. And so, you know, if you, if you look at it from a United States perspective, we had 27 divisions in the Pacific. Six of those were Marine Corps divisions. The other 21 were Army. And of course, the 11th was one of those 21 divisions. And so I think it just, it, they've kind of gotten lost as the brush has been kind of painted over the Pacific, you know, the broad brush mm-hmm. of the Pacific theater. And that was really one of the inspiring factors for me writing Angels Against the Sun was to rectify that and give some visibility into a unit that I think fought in a very unique way in a very horrible theater of
0: war. Yeah. I think that's both an inspiring and honorable thing to do, to give light to figures that got glossed over in the broad strokes of history. Now I've got more questions for you, but before I give you those, we've got to take a quick break. Thank you everyone for listening to this interview with one James M. Fenelon on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. And we are back. Thank you, folks, for joining us today. My name's Nate, and today I get the pleasure of interviewing one James M. Fenelon about his book, Angels Against the Sun, which is a historical narrative about the Army 11th Airborne Division and their story on the Pacific front of World War II. Now, you included a lot of fascinating pictures in your book. Uh, Some of these pictures, I, I, I like that you use them in the same way that you have contrasts in the narrative of you have pictures of somebody. I mean, it's not it's not gory by any means, but you see an operating table in a, in a, a camp tent. You see planes flying over Lake Tal. Um, but you also have <laughs> four of the Angels U.S. Navy opponents for a football game in Manila. And you use you have uh, headshots of, of plenty of the various figures that you bring up. You have troopers posing with spears um, used by Japanese during bonsai attacks. I, I don't know if this is a question pers- as much as just an appreciation for all of these pictures grounding the history like you're trying to do in the, the nuanced experience of the soldiers.
1: One of my favorite photos in the book is that photo of the, of the Army-Navy football game in Manila. Those four guys just covered in mud you know, with the ropes holding up their pants. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> there was just way <laughs> too much character in that photo not, not to include it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, speaking of, of character, there's a, a lot of names in here. And, I mean, of course, giving honor to, to all of the, the, the soldiers that fought, I also felt that it was still a cohesive story. Um, how did you go about, I don't know, giving each figure their proper due? If families were giving you their pictures... I mean, of course you want to do justice to the people who still have living relatives today, but also you want to honor the people that, that fought and died. It's just, as you present this narrative, that seems like a difficult juggling act to give everyone their proper due while also continuing the flow of the story. I was just wondering how you handled that.
1: Yeah, Nate, I think you, I think you nailed it. It's, it's a tough balancing act. You know, The, the early draft of, of the book had a lot more names in it, and some of the feedback I got was there's just so many so many names to keep track of. And of course, that was me trying to over index on to your point of, of paying homage to those troopers. So I, you know, I tried to strike the balance of of placing a critical eye on the editing process. And the compromise I came up with was if, you know, if I mention them multiple times, then I try to use their name as much as possible. If it's an anecdote from somebody, then, you know, I make a judgment call, but I always put their name in the footnotes. Yes. as a way to still kind of maintain that that personal aspect of it. But it, it's a tricky component because you want to tell as many stories in order to provide readers with the experience, but you don't want to overwhelm the narrative with uh by a reader thinking, "Oh, I got to I've got to remember this person." Because some some cases you do and sometimes you don't.
0: Yeah. And on those footnotes, they are <laughs> it's almost 60 pages at the back of the book of dense notes throughout the chapters of just adding nuanced information to all of the various quotes and just pieces of info that you, you, you give the readers. So I really appreciated that because I, <laughs> I will say I came across that later on in my reading. So I kind of went back and looked at it again with the earlier chapters, but that was a, a nice kind of double back in appreciation for the, the, the attention to detail that you have, I guess, as we, as we start to, to wrap up these thoughts, um, I found the variety of soldiers' responses interesting, not just on the big picture of the dichotomy between the camaraderie and the terror, but also how at the beginning you mentioned a guy that described how he felt powerful when holding his M1, where others uh, would curse God, others would, would thank God for being alive, others would ask why we're here. What was your thought process in, in laying out these responses? Did you see like a, a trend in how people and in how individuals looked at the war and their experience in there—did you see a, I guess, consistency in in how they responded, or was it really just all over the place? With with some people being vindictive, some people being uh, uh, like power hungry, some people being humble. Yeah, just just what did you find was was, if there can be a common experience of the war, what that was?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, to your point, I found that you know opinions on the war, opinions on, uh, you know, how they responded to it uh, varied pretty wildly, right? To your point, there were guys who found, you know, engaging with the enemy a very empowering thing. There were other guys who found it terrifying, but, but you know, quote-unquote, stuck to their guns. As that, that was their job, and so they viewed it as, well, this is my job, and I'm going to do it, but I, I don't have to like it type of thing. Mm-hmm. I think the, the thing that, that came across, in, in the diaries and in the letters and there was I, I quoted a letter in, in, in the book specifically from, from right right towards the end of the war in late in mid nineteen forty five. The consistent theme I think is just that, you know, I couldn't have done it without these guys, you know, without mm. yeah. the Brotherhood, so to speak. And I think that's the most consistent thing. And the thing that's unique about it is is that, you know, they didn't all have to agree on all of these other points that you mentioned, right? There could be a wide range of Of agreements and disagreements. Some of the guys had a very strong faith. Some guys had no faith. Some guys loved the job. Some guys did not. But what they all had in common was that they were all in it together. And they realized that the only way they were going to really survive it is by relying on each other. And that that kind of was the consistent theme that came across.
0: Yeah. And one last comment for me on that is that I found it so both sad, but almost Bittersweet heartwarming that you mentioned in the acknowledgments that veterans would often chronicle, even if they got things out of sequence or incorrectly recalled a date, all of their stories would be often framed in relation to a killed or wounded comrade. The way that they remembered the war was first and foremost through um, their brothers in war. And so the way that they remembered how things played out was when they lost. Or had to deal with an injured brother, um, and that just that just really struck me that in speaking to veterans, that's how they frame frame their experience.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the things I, I tried to bring out in Angel Against the Sun was this idea of the jungle as a as almost another adversary, the weather as another adversary, and to your point, when you know you spent weeks, almost you know months in the jungle, there is no monday or tuesday or the third of april it's all you know i think i put the quote in the book it was all yesterday today and tomorrow were the three days that they had and so that's where to your point when they were reflecting on events they often would say okay yeah so johnny was killed and then this or that was right before johnny was shot you know that that kind of thing and so they framed it that was that was the only real calendar That they had in memorize, you know, in in bringing back the memories of these events.
0: Yeah. Well, on that on that note, uh, this. Where can where can people find this Angels Against the Sun? Because I really enjoyed this read.
1: Well, thank you. I'm I'm glad you found it an engaging read, and folks can find it either on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or any 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 bookstore.
0: Fantastic. Uh, Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to this interview with one James M. Fenelon, author of Angels Against the Sun, a World War II saga of grunts, grit, and brotherhood. It has been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank
1: you, Nate. I've enjoyed it as well.
0: Well, folks, you've been listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Take care.